Thank you for listening to this podcast from TRE. Talk Radio Europe, your voice in Spain and around the world. For more information, please visit tre.radio. Gerard Sweeney presents Live on Era in association with emeraldconnection.net. Live on Era, presented by Ger Sweeney. Good evening, and you are very welcome to another edition of Live on Era, the Irish programme. Thank you so much to Howard Brereton for presenting Spain today. He's back with us tomorrow between 6 and 7. Howard, you and Luna, have yourselves a fabulous evening in Nerja. Now, what have we got for you on the programme? We have a lovely programme lined up for you today, in fact. Um, Patricia Trainer is going to be with me very shortly, but she's going to be presenting a story about the Avoca River, or River Avoca. If you have any clue at all about the geography of Ireland, you will know that Avoca is a very beautiful spot in County Wicklow on the, on the east coast. So Patricia has that story, continuing the series on uh, bodies of water, lakes and rivers on the island of Ireland. Dr. Audrey Whitty will be joining me as well in this hour. Dr. Whitty is the director of the National Library of Ireland, and she's going to be talking to me about a recent acquisition that they have made from at the library. It's the Andrew Bonner Law Collection, or the Bonner Law Collection. It is a phenomenal story. I'll give you more details on it later. But you will hear Dr. Whitty and myself having a chat about that in this hour of the programme. And in the second hour of the programme, a man's name and voice that will be familiar to anybody that has ever watched RTE television or listened to RTE radio, RTE being our national um, public service broadcaster in Ireland. Well, Kieran Malouli spent, um, I think, about 27 years as the Midlands correspondent for RTE. He recently retired from there back about 1921, Sorry, back in 2021, um, he retired. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's written a few books. He has been working on a number of community um, projects since his retirement. He's been doing a bit of studying and he is about to take up a new job with Longford County Council, where he's going to be uh, involved in tourism and trying to attract tourism and create um, situations where um, people will come and visit the area, Longford particularly, but indeed the entire Midlands. Um, an interesting man and a nice fella. And I'm going to be talking to him in the second hour of the programme. So I'm very much looking forward to that. We have some stories from and about Ireland that you might be interested in. And we have some great music lined up for you as well between now and nine o'clock. So that's it. That's what I have for you. Will you stay on? Good. That'd be great. Just the two of us. So um, I lit the fire at about half past three this afternoon. <laughs> it was perishing. It is now minus one, the computer tells me outside. If I dip my toe out, um, I will know for sure, but um, it's in around there and um, it's been done around minus four, minus five in different places around the country uh, throughout the uh, last couple of days. So um, a lot of frost around, a lot of frost that just didn't go away today, but that's fine. I have the fire on and we're nice and cosy and happy days. So we'll get on with it. Now, you may remember if you were listening on the 29th of March, were you? You were. You know that for a fact. Excellent. It was a Wednesday. Yeah. All right. Well, the 29th of March last, I spoke with Dara McGee about the Two Graces project in County Mayo. And I am delighted to be able to report to you a development in that because a statue which is dedicated to the legendary Mayo pirate queen, Grace O'Malley, 
was unveiled in Newport, County Mayo, over the weekend. It's the culmination of a campaign to promote Newport as the town of two graces after a sculpture of Grace Kelly was unveiled last year by her son, Prince Albert of Monaco. And that is the reason why we were talking to Dara. So, where are we at with this? Well, the initiative was undertaken by the Newport Business Association to celebrate two iconic women with close ties to the town and to help promote tourism in the area. Now, the statue of Grace O'Malley is the work of local artist Mark Rode, who also sculpted the statue of Grace Kelly. It depicts the Pirate Queen at the bow of her boat, pointing out to Clue Bay and will be a focal point at the entrance of the town. It was unveiled by Nano O'Malley McMahon, the current chieftain of the O'Malley clan. The statue of Grace Kelly, Princess Monaco, depicts her sitting on a bench close to the landmark viaduct bridge overlooking Clue Bay. It has also led to increased football, sorry, footfall in the town over the summer months, which was the object of the exercise. I'm sure many, 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 many talk radio listeners went there because of what you heard on the 29th of March. The uh, project was aided by leader funding from Mayo Southwest and Mayo County Council and a lot of local fundraising in there as well. So well done. Glad to see that the two graces are now in situ in Newport in County, uh, County Tipperary. I was going to say because there is a Newport in County Tipperary, but a Newport in County Mayo. Do you remember last week I mentioned to you about the Young Scientists and Technology Exhibition? Well, the winner of that competition and exhibition returned to a hero's welcome at his school, not too far from where I'm sitting right now in County Limerick. Uh, I'm in County Clare, but he's in County Limerick. Sean O'Sullivan won the event with his entry, Verify Me, a new approach to authorship attribution in the post-chat GPT era. These young lads and young ladies, aren't they brilliant? Aren't they absolutely brilliant? The project explores the development of a new artificial intelligence detection system that uses past examples of an author's writing to detect if AI was used to generate a piece of work. He arrived at Colosta Huron in Croom in County Limerick on Monday morning to huge applause from his fellow pupils and teachers. That will be a very handy aid for uh, teachers and lecturers in college. Uh, who have been concerned about uh, AI and the generation of, um, how would I say, um, homework and um, um, projects and things like that. Anyway, the fifth year student said that the whole excitement of his win is just sinking in. And it was surreal when he heard his name called as the winner, as the standard of projects he said this year was incredible. Indeed it was. It was even more surreal, he said, when he got huge cheers from his fellow students on his return to school. That's brilliant. He said he's looking forward to finishing school and going to college and said that the, that the BT Young Scientists and Technology Exhibition win has opened up a lot of avenues for him in the future. Sean's dad, Ger O'Sullivan, is the school's principal uh, here and described his son's achievement as absolutely phenomenal for the school community. He said that there had been a huge outpouring of messages of support since the win was announced on Friday, including from other schools across the country, which is nice as well. So that is uh, good news. OK, just checking something. Um, make sure that there's no reports. No, that's fine. Now, on Garda Shia has launched a new recruitment campaign with the age limit to become a Garda trainee increased from 35 to 50. It has been described as a public uh, public relations exercise, but however, we'll, we'll rock on. There will also be an increase in the Garda training allowance with new recruits receiving €305 Euro per week. 
Gardaí say that these additions will provide a steady pipeline of Garda trainees over the coming years. It's also intended that recruitment campaigns will now run annually. At the end of 2023, there were 13,998 Gardaí and the Garda Commissioner Drew Harris has previously commented on the need to meet the government's target of 15,000, so they're not too far away. However, there is a demand within the force to increase Garda numbers even further due to a population growth and the changing nature of crime. In 2023, 746 people started training to be a Garda, with 388 Garda now certified, uh, with the next group of Garda to be certified in April of this year. Launching the new campaign, the Commissioner said, Policing is an ever-changing, modern and diverse society and presents uh, challenges, but equally it affords us opportunities to grow, learn and adapt. This is why Angarda Shiakana recognizes recognizes it to uh, recognizes it and needs to change to meet the needs and demands of the people of Ireland. You know, it was only a very short time ago, um, and I don't think Drew Harris was the uh, commissioner at the time, so it's not uh, pointing a finger at him in any shape or form. But um, men and women over the age of fifty-five were incre- were um, um, encouraged to retire early, and I knew one or two, or I know one or two of those, and they weren't happy. They had another 10 years, they reckoned, uh, to be able to go and uh, would have happily stayed on and were good policemen, really good, good, good police, sorry, police people, I should say, um, who had common sense. They had come up along the years and they had, you know, they they had come to understand what was happening in society and um, on their beat. And um, yeah, all of that fabulous knowledge and compassion and um, not suggesting for a second that those that were left were not compassionate, but uh, the knowledge and just the understanding was gone and it was absolutely um, crazy. Uh, big news that came today uh, is that Taoiseach Leo Varadkar we start that again, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar has confirmed that China has agreed to resume imports of Irish beef. China had suspended imports last November following the discovery of atypical BSE, mad cow disease, in a cow in the west of Ireland. It came as exports had, exports had only resumed back in January of 2023, following a previous ban that began in 2020, following a separate discovery. The news coincides with the Chinese Premier's visit to Ireland and Mr Varadkar said that he expected the change to occur immediately. Speaking at the end of Mr. Lee's visit to Dublin, he said that there was a clear desire on both sides to deepen relations and increase investment. He said the Chinese government has also liberalising its uh, travel rules for Irish citizens, allowing us to stay in China for up to 15 days without a visa. So two very tangible outcomes and a lot more that we can work on, he said. During the open period last year, Uh, Beef exports to China were worth 20 million euro. And in 2019, the last full year of access to the market, exports were worth 40 million euro. The news of the reopening has been welcomed by the Minister for Agriculture, Food and the Marine, Charlie McConnell-Oak. And the President of the Irish Farmers Association, Francie Gorman, has welcomed the announcement and said that farmers must see the benefit. So that's great news. There has been uh, some talk all right today about, uh, you know, well, what about um, our climate change um, policies and methane and uh, increasing the herds and all of that kind of stuff. But that's for another day. For today, it's celebration that the uh, market is open once again, and that will certainly benefit the farmers and indeed the rest of the economy as well. No doubt. Music, I think. That'll be right, Jer. 
Play this for you before Christmas, back around November from the Finns. It's called Nomad. I want to be a nomad with no facade. Fill my bare feet beneath the sunset. I'm making home as a room. I'm alone as a room. I'll be a nomad with no facade. I want to roam. I want to roam. I want to catch a fish through a sheet of ice. Skin up on the spine with my bare device. Carve a deep path to snow up north. Seek a dark cave. Forge of warmth I want to be a nomad with no facade Feel my bare feet picking me the sunset I'm making home as a room I'm alone as a room I'll be a nomad with no facade I want to roam Roam I want to find an oasis Between the desert hills Transform a sheet To shelter with no frills Quench a thirsty road From the spring of life Wear rainbow colors To fend off the burning light I want to be a nomad with no facade Feel my bare feet beneath the sun seat I'm making home as a room, I'm alone as a room I'll be a nomad with no facade I want to roam, roam I want to feel the wind of the pure vast ocean On a raft built from hardship and devotion In tasteless grub from an ancient rock I'll gaze at dusk and a lightning fork I want to be no nomad with no facade Feel my bare feet, I can hit the sun seat I'm making home as a roll, I'm a home as a roll I'll be a nomad with no facade I want to roll, roll I imagine I, oh I Imagine I, oh I Imagine I would be happier On the move with nature I want to sketch my life on a giant red boulder Imitate the sound of a rival predator Speaking all language of unwritten words Bearing no facade I want the world I want to be a nomad with no facade Fill my bare feet beneath the sun seat I'm making home as a roll, I'm alone as a roll I'll be a nomad with no facade Cause I'm a nomad with no facade Fill my bare feet beneath the sun seat I'm making home as a roll, I'm alone as a roll I'll be a nomad with no facade Cause I'm a nomad with no facade Fill my bare feet beneath the sun seat I'm making home as a roll, I'm alone as a roll I'll be a nomad with no facade Cause I'm a nomad no facade with my bare feet beneath the sun seat. I'm making home as a roll. I'm alone as a roll. I'd be a nomad with no facade. I wanna roll, 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 roll. I wanna roll. I wanna There's a lovely Celtic feel to that, isn't there? And a didgeridoo, yeah. <laughs> so Celtic. Aye. Um, <laughs> Kieran and Hugh Finn, brothers, working together as the Finns, and that's a song that's called Nomad. It is Talk Radio Europe. It is Wednesday evening. It's live on ERA, the Irish programme. I hope that you are well. And um, thank you so much for joining me today. Now, you may be joining me on Sunday when we repeat this, but if you are, so I hope you've been having a nice weekend. 
just to kind of throw that in there for the listeners that get a chance to listen on Sunday and not on Wednesdays. I am going to take a very quick break and after that I will introduce you to Patricia Trainer. She's got a story for us. Live on Era, presented by Ger Sweeney. I forgot to mention to you that if you would like to get involved in the programme in any way, if you'd like to pass a comment or ask a question or ask for something to be dedicated or something like that, you're more than welcome. You can send a WhatsApp message to our WhatsApp machine at plus three four six four five ninety nine sixty seven ninety five, or you can send an email to studio at tre.radio or you can send one to me if you like. My own email address is ger, G-E-R, at tre.radio. That works 24-7. Unless it's not working, if you know what I mean. No, no, it works 24-7. Whereas if you send a message to studio at tre.radio, I only get it or see it when I'm on air. Uh, but if you send it to jer at tre.radio, I'll see it um, when I log on, uh, which is every single day. And I have it open all day, every day as I'm working in the office and things like that. Patricia Trainer uh, is joining us again today. And she's got another story about another one of our bodies of water on the island of Ireland. So... Patricia Trainer. Well, hello, Ger. Today I'm going to talk about the River Avoca. Now, it's another place which has been immortalised by a famous Irish poet and lyricist, Thomas Moore. One of the most beautiful places in Ireland is the Vale of Avoca in County Wicklow, or as it is sometimes referred to, the Garden of Ireland. The River Avoca which is 56.3 kilometres long, runs through the valley and is really the confluence of two other rivers, the Avon Beg, which means the small river, and the Avon Moor, which means the big river. The Avon Moor sometimes is also called Avon Day, which means God's River. The present river, Avon Moor, or Avon Day, runs through the grounds of Avondale House on its way to the Irish Sea at Arklow. The present name of the river Avoca comes from Greek, Oboka, which appears in Ptolemy's geography. But there's some dispute as to whether he was talking about this river or perhaps it was the River Liffey. Well, whichever. But today, the river is called the River Avoca. It runs through the grounds of Avondale House, which is the house where Charles Stuart Parnell was born and grew up in. He worked tirelessly as the president of the Land League, which claimed fair rents for tenants and home rule for Ireland. He was often referred to as the uncrowned King of Ireland. His house, which is situated in a magnificent 500-acre forest park, is now a museum. It was built in 1777 and still contains original plasterwork and items of the Parnell family furniture. For 200 years, the Avoca area was famous for its thriving business of copper mines, but they also mined other minerals such as lead and sulphur. The mines closed in 1983, leaving behind a degree of pollution in the beautiful river. But thankfully, Mother Nature has come to the rescue and brown trout have returned to the river once again. In the 1990s, the picturesque village of Avoca became famous for being the location site of the BBC TV series called Ballycus Angel, 
The series was a huge success, reaching 14 million viewers in the UK. So it's no surprise that many of its followers make Avoca an obligatory stop when visiting Ireland. They're enchanted to find the real village is unchanged and is still as beautiful as the fictitious village of Ballycus Angel. Visitors also enjoy seeing the oldest working woolen mill in Ireland, which was founded in 1723. Wool from the sheep there was spun and woven into tweeds and blankets for the local people. Although the business had somewhat declined over the years, it has recently resurged and expanded, and there is now a vibrant chain of Avoca stores all over the country. There is a visitor centre where admission is free. You can even meet the weavers and see them at work. Not only do they offer a wide range of woolen goods, they also have cafeterias where customers can savour their delicious food and then even buy the recipe books. Business is really booming. This almost magical place of Avoca was immortalised by the famous poet and lyricist Thomas Moore. He was so captivated by the soothing noise of the water and the peace and tranquility that it inspired him to compose a song appropriately called The Meeting of the Waters. He is said to have written the song while sitting under a tree. However, some years later, the tree fell down and although the local people managed to put it upright, it was blown down again in a storm in 1938. The locals again came to the rescue, but unfortunately this was not the last time. The tree fell down again several more times. Despite careful pruning, it fell down again in 1964, and in 2008 it was hit by a storm and was almost completely washed away. All that remained was the stump. So, in 2012, a new tree was planted on the spot where the old tree had been. The remains of the original tree lie at the foot of the new tree and there is now a park dedicated to Thomas Moore, the poet and songwriter who immortalised the meeting of the waters and who extolled the natural beauty of this hidden gem in Wicklow. The River Avoca gives this beautiful part of Wicklow its name, the Vale of Avoca. James Joyce was very familiar with Moore's songs, as he alludes to many of them in his works, twice in Ulysses and eleven times in Finnegan's Wake. So let's hear a verse of that beautiful poem, The Meeting of the Waters. There is not in the wide world a valley so sweet as the veil in whose bosom the bright waters meet. Oh, the last rays of feeling and life must depart, ere the bloom of that valley shall fade from my heart. There is not in this wide world a valley so sweet as the veil in whose bosom the bright waters meet Oh, the last rays of feeling And life must depart Where the bloom of that valley 
should fade from my heart as a bloom of that valley should fade from my heart yet it was not that nature had shed all the scene her purest of crystal and brightest of green was not her soft magic or streamlet or hill oh no it was something more exquisite still oh no it was something more exquisite still Beloved of my bosom were near Who made every dear scene of enchantment so dear And who felt how the best charms of nature improve When we see them reflected in the looks that we love In the looks that we love In this cold world should cease And our hearts like thy waters Be mingled in peace Our hearts like thy waters Be mingled in peace Beautiful. Sure, I had to play it, seeing as uh, Patricia had referenced it. The Meeting of the Waters, written by Thomas Moore, and that sung beautifully by Tommy Fleming. And uh, thanks to Patricia for her story on the River of Oka. Uh, much appreciated, as always. I remember uh, chatting to Patricia when we recorded that. I think we recorded that, Patricia, did we, around September of last year? Had that particular story, and I was telling her that there's a nice connection that I have with Evoca, even though I don't know have I ever been there. Um, because Ballykiss Angel was recorded, as she said, there uh, that's where it was shot for many years. And the cousin of my dad's, um, was Birdie Sweeney. And anybody that's in and around Northern Ireland will know who Birdie Sweeney is. Or if you know your TV and your theatre and your acting, you'll know who Birdie Sweeney was. Talented man. 
and he was living in Dungannon. But Birdie starred as Eamon Byrne, the farmer in Bellicus Angel. Sorry, one of the farmers. Um, he always had the beanie and the scarf and he was unshaven and the long grey hair. Like a tramp. <laughs> was, that's what he was like, wasn't he? Um, that was, yeah, Birdie Sweeney, relation of mine. And I remember myself and Patricia talking about that on the day we recorded it. Just to let you know, Patricia has done over 100 of those stories for me on Live On Air up, down through the last four or five years. And um, every single one of them, much appreciated. If you'd like to hear any of them or all of them, they're all together on one podcast. We call it the um, Stories of Ireland and the Irish and uh, just Google Patricia Trainer T R A I N O R wherever you get your podcasts, or just Google or just look for um, stories of Ireland and the Irish, and they'll all be there. Every single one of them. I can't remember how many there are there. No, but one hundred and twenty odd, something like that. There at the minute, anyway. Alrighty, listen, come on, the time is running out and we have one more uh, fascinating interview to do before the start or before the uh, end of this particular hour. A good news, Peter O'Mahony has been named as Ireland's captain for the upcoming Guinness Six Nations. The announcement came as head coach Andy Farrell named a 34-man squad for the tournament, which begins on the 2nd of February against France in Marseille. The 34-year-old Munster back row, who has 101 Irish caps, is currently contracted with the IRFU until the end of the summer. And negotiations on a new deal are ongoing process, I believe, to uh, the province said yesterday. O'Mahony surprisingly stepped down as Munster captain in November. Farrell said that pa- Peter O'Mahony is a born leader and somebody who has been an influential figure for Munster and Ireland for many years. Farrell said that he is uh, confident uh, that the squad will continue continue to benefit from his leadership skills both on and off the field. We wish him well and wish Ireland uh, the very best in the Six Nations as well, of course. Um, uh, news, other news of two people leaving the scene. Um, eight-time All-Ireland winner Dean Rock, who turns 34 next month, has announced his retirement from inter-county football. The Ballymun Kickham's players' retirement statement was released by Dublin GAA on Tuesday morning. Speaking to RTE's 6-1 News yesterday, Rock added that the level of success he enjoyed with Dublin was more than he initially dreamed of. Uh, Dean Rock, son of former Dublin corner forward Barney Rock, who won an All-Ireland title with the capital in 1983, made his inter-county debut under Pat Gilroy in the 2012 league campaign but only broke through properly the following year under his successor Jim Gavin after collecting his first All-Ireland medal as a substitute in 2013. He went on to become an integral part of Dublin football's greatest era assuming free-taking duties during the six-in-a-row run from 2015 to 2020. He famously nailed the winning point in the memorable 2017 All-Ireland final uh, win over Mayo and also holds the record for the fastest goal ever in an All-Ireland decider scoring the opener in the first play row of the 2020 final. During this, during that particular year, he overtook Jimmy Keaveney, uh, one of Dublin's greats and Dublin's all-time leading scorer, finishing with 24 goals and 591 points across the entire career. Rock dropped off to, of the starting team last year, but succeeded in making an impact off the bench, scoring the only goal of the semi-final against Monaghan 
and tapping over a late point against Kerry in the final as Dublin regained the All-Ireland crown. Meanwhile, Monaghan stalwart Kieran Hughes has announced the end of his inter-county career. Hughes, who turns 34 as well next month, told the Irish News that after a long club campaign with Scottstown, his body is not able to do it anymore. A haddy to go from club to county in such quick su- succession. He retires after a 15-year inter-county career, which began in 2009, the McKenna Cup, on the manager Seamus McEnany. Hughes was an influential figure in Monaghan's rise in the 2010s, scoring three points from play in their 2013 Ulster final victory, their first for a quarter of a century. He was also part of the side which added another provincial crown two years later. So there we go. There's more sport, but I, I don't have time for it. I have to go and do a very quick break. And after that, I'm going to be talking to my next guest, Dr. Um, Audrey Whitty, who is the director of the National Library of Ireland. Live on Era, presented by Ger Sweeney. The most complete visual record of Ireland in map and print form ever assembled, ever assembled, no, by a private collector has been acquired by the National Library of Ireland. The Bonner Law Collection, compiled by expert collector Andrew Bonner Law, comprises approximately 10,000 maps and 9,000 prints, which include caricature prints and ballad sheets going back to the 16th century. As I said, they've been purchased by the National Library of Ireland. Dr. Audrey Whitty is the National Library of Ireland Director, and I'm delighted to say she joins us via Zoom this evening. Uh, Dr. Whitty, it's lovely to talk to you. How are you today? I'm not too bad at all, Jaron. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Delighted to have you on board. This is a scoop of all scoops, is it? Or is it not? It, it really is. It, I think this is uh, safe to say once in a generation by way of an opportunity to acquire such an extensive collection on behalf of the state through the National Library of Ireland. Um, it's an exceptional collection. It would take approximately 55 years, over half a century for any national cultural institution to have done with Andrew Boner Law and his daughter Charlotte have done, which um, is a mass, this, as you said, 19,000 individual items within this incredible collection, looking at the topography and also, um, I suppose, the graphic uh, print um, and pictorial, um, you know, heritage of Ireland, um, obviously starting from the point of view of maps and cartography, but anything really to do with the image of Ireland from, let's say, the 16th century, the 1530s actually would be the earliest item in the collection, all the way up to the year 2010. So I don't, I don't think we'll see the likes of this all that often ever again. Now, listeners, um, Irish listeners who know their history will recognise the name Andrew Bonner Law and our UK listeners will know exactly who we're talking about because um, A. Andrew or Anne Andrew Bonner Law was Conservative Prime Minister in the UK 1922-23 uh, at a crucial period in the uh, Anglo-Irish relations and, and so on. Um, yeah. Were half of these sneaked out of the House of Commons by any chance? Um, <laughs> at all. In fact, Andrew Boner Law um, Jr., for want of a better term, I mm. believe he may be, he is a direct descendant of the Andrew Boner Law from literally a century ago because the, the original, um, for want of a better term, passed away in 1923, mm. so literally 101 years ago. Um, but no, this is very different and has actually everything to do with um, Andrew Boner Law um, going to Trinity College in Dublin in the 1960s, actually the 1950s. And I think as early as 1957 as a student in Trinity, 
uh, picking up his first map um, somewhere around South William Street um, and ironically ended up owning a gallery called the Neptune Gallery on South William Street then for many, many years. Um, so the eye that Andrew Boner Law had, I think, is exceptional. And no wonder he started then in earnest from 1965 onwards, amalgamating and forming this superb collection. And then his daughter, obviously, Charlotte, had huge expertise as well in the area. How did it come to land on your lap or did it? Did you have to fight for this? Um, well, I, in the usual sense that any national cultural institution, including the National Library of Ireland, would be approached by vendors, agents, uh, sometimes obviously through the family directly themselves um, by way of either a purchase or a donation or indeed a bequest. Um, there are 12 million items in the collections of the National Library of Ireland. It's the largest national collections out of all of the cultural institutions in the state, something we take very seriously so you would go through, um, you know, the usual procedures and policies when it comes to these things and you'd obtain um, what I would call, um, a, you know, an independent valuation, for instance, on something of this magnitude and importance for the country. So I, I know that it's currently being put together. It's not going to live um, at the National Library in Dublin. It's going to be living at the University College Cork. Um, so how did that particular um, arrangement come about? It came about mainly because um, under the National Culture Institutions Act, the National Library actually does have um, an obligation, I would say, and a duty to look at loaning out to like-minded cultural institutions, so libraries, archives and educational establishments. And UCC have an incredible track record in what's called historical geography. So from the Cork University Press series of atlases that have been published over the last uh, 12 years in particular, they seemed like the ideal partner for something on this magnitude. And we really wanted to do it right uh, because, like I said, it'll be another half a century before we see it again. Mm. So ultimately, because of their track record, like with the the Atlas of the Great um, Irish Famine or the Grand, and also of the Irish Revolution, that particular series in terms of cartography and the pictorial image um, through topography and cartography that you get in Irish heritage, it seemed like a natural fit for us. So that's why it's in UCC. But it'll reside um, for on a long-term loan in uh, the Boo Library of University College Cork, which means it's open not just to the general public, but also to students. Um, so it's it's very deliberate in trying to, I suppose, whet the appetite for future research, considering an awful lot of this um, really deserves a thorough deep dive. It, one item alone, you could, you could write a few thousand words on it, never mind 19,000 individual items. Will, will you tell us about some of the nuggets of of gold that um, are contained within it? Uh, I'd love to, Jared. I mean, uh, the, the earliest maps actually date to the 1530s. Wow. So they're the earliest representations ever um, in the history of the world, really, apart from Ptolemy's map of Ireland from 140 AD. There wasn't much actually in the, um, by way of development up until the 1530s. So the, the, the were Italian map makers, one, and one particular gentleman called Bordoni, his maps um, are in the collection from around the 1537. There's also um, later on around 1612 or so, another Italian map maker called Lefrere. And again, it was so interesting, particularly in the 16th and the 17th centuries, before the Down survey uh, took place after the Cromwellian confiscations, is that the, the Western seaboard of Ireland, how that was depicted, is obviously so skewed 
and so oh. unknown ultimately that's really only after 1658 did you get the first what I would call modern interpretation of the, the outline and the map of Ireland in its entirety rather than just focusing on uh, let's say the southeast Leinster in particular and Ulster um, a little bit of Munster but certainly entire tra- tranches of, of Connacht and even the northwest just don't really come onto the map until well into the 1600s what are ballad sheets? Are they actually sheets with ballads written on them? Um, uh, well, it's to a certain extent they can be, but a lot of them are kind of tongue-in-cheek, kind of satirical okay. uh, political cartoons and social commentary. Um, so we have a huge amount of them, thanks to the Boner Law Collection, and um, from publications like the Weekly Freeman and the United Irishman, Stevens Review and Pat, which were very important publications in the 19th century. But I think very, very um, current from the point of view of a lot of discussions now in libraries and museums around the world on decolonization, because the depiction in some of these um, cartoons uh, would be extremely um, racist, ultimately against the Irish. So I think that's an ex- extremely important a series um, of, of, of printed matter to be in the collection um, again under the auspices of the NLI but on loan to UCC. Where did um, Bonner Law's love of uh, he must have had a love of Ireland and the Irish and Irish history where did it come from? Was it to do with his own family background or what? Quite possibly, but I know because he was a student in Trinity College in the 1950s, he decided after graduating from Trinity that he actually would base himself in Ireland. So I I think it's safe to say that Andrew Boner Law and then later uh, through his daughter Charlotte have been such true and active citizens of the country and residents of the country because not only did they amass this incredible collection, but Andrew was responsible for three seminal publications on the history of maps of Ireland. Um, And one of which is uh, the printed maps of Ireland up to 1612, the printed maps of Ireland 1612 to 1850, and the prints and maps of Dublin. And he was, and the last publication he only published in 2005. Uh, the first one I mentioned is from over 40 years ago. So it is, it is mm. extraordinary legacy and contribution. It's, abs- it's absolutely phenomenal. Now, I know that um, this probably has only just been, you've been skirting around this particular collection. Nobody, maybe, maybe they have, have seen it all and has had time to digest. Were there any wow moments from people that would have had access to it already? Oh, absolutely. Um, certainly from what I could see when I was in UCC on, on Monday for the announcement of the acquisition by Antonis and Michal Martin. And um, the one thing that really struck everybody present who had the absolute privilege of seeing some of the items was um, Thomas Fry's prints. I mean, Thomas Fry is a very important messaging engraver and landscape um, artist, actually, of the 18th century, who was born probably near Eden Derry in County Offaly around 1710. He ended up making a huge name for himself in London and actually became one of the first inventors of porcelain in these islands. And he took the original patent. So he was just a total genius. But anyway, on the side, he did these incredible prints. And um, they're all of these incredible portrait facial um, kind of head figures. He didn't do full body um, messaging engraving. He did just the heads of these beautiful Georgian caricatures, but but of real life people. 
um, and absolutely stunningly beautiful when you look at the, you know, the black and white of a print and how tricky it is with message and engraving because you have to look at the, the grading of how it goes from grey to white to black oh. and how a subtle shadow gives you the impression of a particular colour, for instance. So it's just, they were, they were absolutely beautiful. All right. I know that we can't see them yet. There's been one or two pictures of what's there um, available online to us, but I know that's just a teaser. Um, We will be able to go and see it in Cork, but for listeners who may not be able to get to Ireland in the very near future, it is hoped that maybe later this year, early next year, we might be able to access it online. Am I right? Absolutely. We're hoping that initially some tranche um, will be ready by the end of 2024 through obviously the Boole Library at UCC's website and also through um, the Digital Collections, um, a catalogue of the National Library of Ireland's website, which is nli.ie. Um, we have, I think, about 180,000 digitised items on our website at the moment. Um, so it is treasure trove and mm. we'll, we'll obviously keep adding to it. Uh, so keep checking into both websites um, for the, the initial release of some of those images, hopefully by year end. Um, I was talking to somebody in UCC last year about the Richard Harris uh, collection that's going to be available there. And I said, when will it be available? I think they were talking 25, 26 or thereabouts. But again, like that, any Anything like this, when you hear about it and hear how fantastic it is, you want to see it now. You don't want yes. to wait, so you don't. But look, we've waited this long. We can wait another year or thereabouts, I would imagine. Yeah. And an awful lot has been digitised, which is great, Jair. So it's not like we're starting from scratch. So I think that the first tranche will be available sooner rather than later. We look forward to that. Listen, we'll keep an eye on the National Library of Ireland website, nli.ie. Um, in the meantime, Dr. Audrey Whitty, the Director at the National Library of Ireland, thank you so much for talking to us about the Andrew Bonner Law Collection and um, can't wait to see it. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Cher. It was a pleasure.
thought it would be appropriate to play that from Villagers, that golden time, new music from him. Um, played him last week and I didn't expect, I wasn't expecting a new single out, but when I heard it I thought, oh, I'll have to play it and then it fitted in so nicely after we spoke, I spoke to Dr. Audrey Whitty. Thank you to Dr. Whitty for taking time to talk to us about that wonderful collection, that Bonner Law connection, collection um, at the National Library of Ireland now. So there we go. Alrighty, um, I wanted to tell you as well when we were talking about sport a little earlier on that the um, there was there was kind of eruptions you know the way the GAA um, is great and we love the GAA indeed we do because it's in every community in Ireland and has has helped to strengthen every single community and parish across the country um, but God knows and do they know how do they know how to attract um, the ire of the public at times Cork GAA is considering feedback from members and the public over proposed naming rights for Porky Cueve as talks continue with Supervalue Cork GAA um, this all came about because Corky, um, sorry Parky Cueve in Cork uh, is named after Porrigo Cueve and um I'll tell you about him in a second, but they were in talks, the Cork GA were in talks with um, Supervalue, the uh, supermarket chain, to change the name right, for a couple of bob, and they were going to call it Supervalue Park, and there was ructions. <laughs> when it was announced and it wasn't announced it was just kind of you know uh, even Parik O'Keefe's um, family didn't get notice of it they heard it on the media as well but anyway Cork GAA CEO Kevin O'Donovan said maintaining the existing stadium name along with a sponsor in the new title was up for discussion as they aim to strike a deal before the championship starts in April Cork County Board confirmed that no final decision has been taken regarding the naming rights following a behind closed doors meeting of the delegates on Tuesday evening. 
uh, talks had taken place that could see the the uh, home of Cork GAA renamed Super Value Park. Tonishta Michal Martin, who hails from Cork, was also among those criticising the proposal to change the name. The Cork North, sorry, the Cork North Central TD so that he was deeply disappointed and annoyed by the plans speaking on RTE's sports, or sorry, speaking to RTE's sports, Marty Morrissey. After the meeting last night, Kevin O'Donovan confirmed talks with SuperValue over naming rights are ongoing, dropping the name of the man, Porik O'Quive, former, former GAA Director General, after whom Porik O'Quive was named, has already uh, been met with disapproval with O'Quive's grandson, Donald, stating that, he, that his grandfather had a dream of inclusive and he wanted a GAA pitch in every parish. With the debt um, of the stadium standing at over €30 million, Kevin O'Donovan insisted it was imperative that all commercial options were pursued before being discussed. The CEO insists the intense debate that has followed since reports of the naming rights came to light in an indic- is, is an indication of the depth of feeling that people have for the GAA. It shows the value of the Cork brand. It shows the passion people have. It shows that it is um, or it is was discussed in many households across the country. He said it's hoped to have a decision made before the start of the 2024 championships. The stadium plays host to Cork's opening round of the Munster Hurling Championship against Clare on the 28th of April, uh, while three weeks earlier, the Limerick footballers travelled to Leaside, taking on the Rebels in a Munster quarter final. Indeed, I'll tell you one thing, whether it goes ahead or doesn't go ahead, Super Value has got themselves a savage amount of advertising already without a single bob, I would imagine, having been passed between them and the Cork County Board. And I would imagine the um, the compromise will be Parky Quee or Super Value Parky Quee. I would imagine that's what's going to happen at some point. It'll be announced in the near future and um, hopefully everybody will be happy enough with that. We're coming to the end of the first hour of the programme. Um, we've had an exciting one thus far, I think. I hope you would agree with me. Don't forget, if you'd like to get in contact, you're more than welcome to do so. Our WhatsApp is plus three four six four five ninety nine sixty seven ninety five, or you can send an email to studio at tre.radio or use my own email if you like, which is ger at tre.radio. I have more news for you from and about Ireland. I have another few tracks to play as well. And I've got another guest for you to meet in the second hour of the programme. So I hope that you will stay with me. All right. And just a reminder that when I'm finished at nine o'clock, we'll be going to the BBC overnight and we will stay there. Oh, we will. Yeah, we'll sit right there until tomorrow morning at eight o'clock when Dave will be in for uh, daybreak. So um, that'll be from eight to ten. So that's what's happening for the rest of the evening. But first, we've another hour to do and the news on the way. See you shortly. Talk Radio Europe. Your voice in Spain. Live on Era, presented by Ger Sweeney. And you welcome back. Welcome to the second hour of Live on Era. Coming up in this hour, I'm going to be talking to a man that if you know your broadcasting, your Irish broadcasting, you will be familiar with. A man called Kiron Malouli. 
And Kiron spent many years, spent over two decades as the Midlands correspondent with the um, public service broadcaster in Ireland, uh, RTE. He's also an author, he's a community activist, and he's about to take up a new job, a new role with um, Longford County Council, where he's going to be involved with tourism projects there. So I'm very much looking forward to that conversation with Kiron uh, in this hour of the programme. Uh, we have some news for you of bits and pieces as well, and I have some more music to play as well. Former Garda stations, post offices and schools are to be converted for community use under a scheme that will breathe new life into towns and villages. That's according to the Minister for Rural and Community Affairs, Heather Humphreys. The Minister has announced €4.5 million in funding for 24 projects, which she said will reduce dereliction and vacancy in rural communities. The minister says this will drive footfall into town centres, increasing tourism and making towns and villages better places to live, work, invest, visit and raise a family. Among the projects include an old Garda barracks in Balacolic in County Mayo, which will be converted into a gym and remote working hub, a former bakery in Belturbert in County Cavan, a former pub in Tipperary Town, and a former parochial hall in Finglas in Dublin, which um, will all be turned into multi-purpose community spaces. We'll see how that all pans out. But it sounds like um, a jolly good idea on paper, doesn't it? Indeed, we wish them well with it. The richest 1% of the population in Ireland holds more than a third of the entire Irish financial wealth of the country. That's worth repeating. The richest 1% of the population in Ireland holds more than one third of the entire Irish financial wealth of the country. Wow. That's according to Oxfam, which also claims that the two richest Irish billionaires possess more wealth than the bottom half of the state's population. I'm not going to repeat that. I could be here all night. The organisation is once again repeating its call for the government to impose taxes on extremely or extreme wealth of over €5 million. Euro. It says a progressive permanent wealth tax placed on millionaires and billionaires in Ireland um, could raise 9.2 billion euro in funding each year. The closing of tax loopholes could also raise 7.1 uh, billion euro, it says, referencing a report by the Oireachtas Budget Oversight Committee back in 2022. Well, it says if the recommendations of the Commission on Taxation and Welfare were implemented, 15 billion could be yielded. It also wants the government to empower regulators, workers and the state to take on businesses that overreach. It's time for states to reassert themselves, including the Irish state, said Breed McGrath, the director of the public affairs at Oxfam Ireland. She said that Oxfam is calling on the Irish government to, um, sorry, to properly tax wealth and close the loopholes for tax avoidance. Oxfam believes that no one, no one Oh, yeah, sorry, I beg your pardon. Oxfam believes that not one cent of taxpayers' money should go to errant corporations that don't take their corporate citizenship seriously. Those who abuse their dominant position don't pay their workers a living wage, who refuse to reduce carbon emissions. Those companies should be outside the fold when it comes to grant aid, tax breaks and any other reliefs at budget time. The demands are being made as Oxfam published a new report, Inequality Inc., it's what it's called, time to coincide with the start of the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum in Davos, which is attended by the world's top business and political leaders. 
The report, which probes global inequality, finds that since 2020, almost 5 billion people have been made poorer, while at the same time, the five richest men have seen their wealth double. It also claims it also claims that if the current trend continues, the first trillionaire ever wow, will have been created within a decade. But it will be another 229 years before poverty has been eradicated. The report also finds that seven out of 10 of the world's biggest corporations have a billionaire as CEO or principal shareholder. Collectively, these firms are worth $10.2 trillion, which is equivalent to more than the combined GDPs of all countries in African and Latin America, Oxfam states. I'm just thinking about it. Those billionaires they probably spend more on a lunch, a breakfast or a business lunch than I earn in a year. Wow. I bet they do. It wouldn't surprise me. A new survey. Another one. It's a great time of the year for surveys, isn't it? The beginning and the end of the year. Always great for surveys. But anyway, a new survey has shown that 38% of Irish employers will require their employees to spend more time in the office this year. The study from recruitment consultants Hayes Ireland also shows that 58% of employers expect hybrid working arrangements to stay the same this year. The research found that currently 44% of employees work full or fully from the office, while 41% follow a hybrid model. The analysis shows that 61% of workers said that they would not be prepared to accept a lower salary for a role that was fully remote. Almost half of employees said that their working hours, including flexible working, would ideally change in order to improve their work-life balance. Meanwhile, 54% of employees said that they would consider a job in the future that did not offer hybrid working. Employers vary in their expectations of hybrid working, with 27% mandating three days of physical presence in the office, 20% requiring a minimum of two days, and 23% offering full flexibility in choosing remote or office work. Yeah, that's nice. Maureen Lynch is the Managing Director of Hayes Ireland and she says that as employees' preferences shift, employers adapt their approaches to workplace setups. The report emphasises the significance of a healthy work-life balance and for um, fostering in-person collaboration within teams, Ms Lynch said. The survey was uh, published as part of Hayes Ireland Salary and Recruitment Trends Guide 2024 and received over 1,450 responses from employers and professionals across Ireland between August and September of last year. So that's where all that information comes from. Now, this particular song, I think, is it on release as of today or is it Friday? I'll double check it when it's on. Should have double checked it beforehand. But it comes from a folk duo from County Donegal calling themselves Without Willow. Here's their new single. It's called Lay Down Your Troubles. He lost the battle But just with himself And he saw it coming Before
lovely uh, without Willow Simon and Karen both from County Donegal and lay down your troubles new from them um, they've got a brand new album which is coming out on the 9th of February so I'm hoping to get a listen to that in advance and um, they have been on the scene for a little while Karen is a former qualified nurse I mean she's still a qualified nurse you're never former in that business, you're not, no. And um, Simon, a graphic design student and virtuoso guitar player. They have a nice sound, they really do. So we wish them well with their um, single, Lay Down Your Troubles, which you've just heard, and the album. What's the name of the album? Um, there's so many, so much information in this press release. Uh, left Behind, that's right, Left Behind is the name of the album. So there we go, wish them well with it. And I hope you enjoy that as much as I enjoyed playing it for you this evening. Now, what else have I got for you? More news, right. Uh, Bristow, Ireland. Yes, we've mentioned Bristow, Ireland before. That's taking over, that company's taking over the contract to provide search and rescue services for the Irish Coast Guard. Well, they've reached an agreement with the Forza Trade Union and its uh, Irish Airline Pilots Association branch, IALPA. In August of last year, Bristow signed a contract with the Department of Transport for the provision of rotary and fixed wing aviation services for the Irish Coast Guard. Forza represents technical crew, including winch operators, while IALPA represents flight crews, including pilots. The agreement between Bristow and the union covers agreed terms and conditions of employment, as well as a comprehensive disputes resolution procedure between the parties. The employees involved will transition to Bristow up to June of 2025, in line with the intended transition plan and schedule. Bristow described the agreement as a key milestone in the successful transition of search and rescue operations. 
Um, Bristol said that it is continuing to engage with the Unite Trade Union, which represents engineering staff, and that it expects expects to move forward with further discussions early this year. The company said it is preparing for a transition to the new contract in the fourth quarter of this year. Bristol, Ireland will operate six specialist SAR configured AW189 helicopters from dedicated bases in Shannon, Sligo, Waterford and Weston. Uh, Weston is based just outside Dublin. In addition to the helicopter service, the new Coast Guard aviation service will, for the first time, also include a fixed wing aircraft service. Weston Autodrome is actually just beside the airport, beside Dublin Airport, isn't it? It's not too far from Dublin Airport. So there you have it. Um, that's good news. Indeed, it is good news. How are we doing? We're doing okay. All right. I'll do one more piece and then I will go to the ad break because Kieran Maluli will be joining us very shortly. Minister for Transport Eamon Ryan has said that a proposal to remove car parking spaces from public servants will be included in a plan to be brought to the government in the coming weeks. The proposal will be contained in the National Demand Management Strategy, which aims to reduce traffic congestion in major towns and cities. Minister Ryan said reducing car parking spaces for public servants will be part of of the solution, and he envisaged beginning the process later this year. The minister also indicated that TDs and senators would be asked to give up their parking spaces as part of the plan. He said members of the Oireachtas should lead by example, but that will be a matter for the Oireachtas. Mr Ryan said the proposal to reduce gridlock in the capital would also include a change in the management system to remove through traffic. The Green Party leader said proposals to reduce congestion would involve a dramatic change in our public transport system. That needs to happen sooner rather than later. And I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. All right, let's do a very quick break, shall we? And after that, I'm going to be talking to a man who is very well known across Ireland and probably the UK as well. But um, maybe across the continent, because many people might tune in to RTE down through the years when he used to be the RTE Midlands correspondent, Kieran Maluli, just after this. Live on Era, presented by Ger Sweeney. The name Kieran Maluli will be very familiar to a lot of people, particularly if you have an interest in Irish media, Irish politics, Irish anything to do with the Midlands, in fact. We'll tell you why in a second. But um, if you don't know his name, you'll certainly know his voice. Kieran Maluli, lovely to talk to you and welcome to the programme via Zoom. How are you? Hello, Ger. Uh, thank you for the invitation, and I'm delighted uh, to speak to you and to your listeners in Spain. No, um, listen. We 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 we'll start at the at, at the start in terms of where people might know you from. You spent was it 27 years as Midlands correspondent with RTE. Uh, before yeah, that, almost. yeah. Before that, yeah. you cut your teeth like most people uh, in your business did in the local newspapers. Um, so look, let's start uh, with, with let's start with RTE. Uh, your time time there. Did you love it? Yeah, I have to say for the most part I did. Uh, I began actually, my first programme on, on television was a programme called Ear to the Ground, a famous RT rural affairs magazine show, farming show, uh, with a lady called Raid McGuinness uh, did the, uh, did the uh, interview process and did the screen testing with me a long, long time ago. And I worked for one season on that programme and I loved it. It was going around the country meeting people from all corners of the, of the country, West Coast, East Coast, talking rural affairs, uh, but like all other independent produced programs on RTE, it has a, a shelf life and that you only get 13 weeks or 26 weeks in the year. And after that, you're unemployed. A lot of people mm. think it's very glamorous 
uh, for people like um, Dermot Bannon on 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 his programs. So you're only commissioned for thirteen or twenty six weeks. It's either thirteen weeks before Christmas and thirty weeks after Christmas. Okay. That's the way it works. So I was out of work after my first thirteen weeks. Told you I might have a job back next year. The series went fairly well, uh, but I applied for the RT newsroom for a temporary job in the intervening period. And as I say, the rest is history, Ger. <laughs> still, uh, still there. Twenty five years later. Uh, when I worked, I worked in Dublin initially on the news desk and enjoyed that. And then the position came up for employment in my own part of the country, going back down to the Midlands, the misty Midlands, back to the bog. You can take the man out of the bog, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I was delighted to do so because it was a, a, a changing time for the Midlands. Longford, Westmead, Lee, Shoffley, Roscommon and Kildare. So heavily reliant on board Nimona uh, over the last 60 years. And I, I also, uh, maybe a bit like yourself, had an elderly parent at home, elderly parents, and wanted to return to the Midlands. And that's what I did. And I, I met uh, no regrets. I, st- I stayed there for over 25 years. All right. Uh, the hi- was there a highlight and a low light for you in terms of the 27 years? Yeah, I'm often asked this question um, in, in, the, in, in, the, in the wake of retirement from RT. And, you know, I suppose... Um, I, I'll start maybe with maybe the 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 low light, I suppose, the toughest time. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the nature of our job in news, Ger, and your listeners will know this, some days there's nothing but bad news mm-hmm. on the radio or on the television. And it's the nature of the job. Um, you know, and my my former colleague, the late great Western correspondent, Jim Fahey, was asked once what he did for a living um, by a lady out in Spain. I think he was on holidays at the time. And he summed it up in three words. He said, Murder, death, and destruction. <laughs> uh, and uh, and she looked at him in a quizzical form, and she says, "Are you a detective?" Or no, he says, "I'm a broadcaster. I'm a reporter." <laughs> but that's the nature of our life. I'm afraid it, it is tough. Sometimes bad news. So my my memory of the lowest day, I suppose, would have to be going back almost to the beginning, uh, going back to the Curra in County Kildare and the murder of a woman, a violent murder of a lady uh, in a village called Cara, which is on the edge of the Curra there. Uh, she was r- running a news agency with her husband, a, a military uh, officer nearby, and uh, she was murdered, raped, violently assaulted, uh, and 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 hidden in the car. Um, and it was a most shocking experience, obviously for the family, for the local community, but for me as a cub reporter, I was stunned by the violent nature of this death in this community. And uh, eventually, uh, I an opportunity came up within a day or so while the guardie was still searching for the the people responsible to interview the. Uh, husband of the lady who died. Um, he was a very experienced uh, um, military officer. He came on RT television, six o'clock news, and he issued one of the most amazing um, appeals for information I ever heard in my life. He talked about the need for people to come forward, but he was very bitter and angry about people coming in gangs into rural Ireland and attacking people and violence that was going on. I was quite stunned. It was it was an extraordinary, Rayburn was the man's name. It was an extraordinary um um, man to, to deliver such an emotional appeal within 24 hours of his wife being murdered in the car. And it stuck It stuck with me all those years. It wow. stuck me all, all those 25 years. I've never forgotten that interview. Um, but listen, there were occasions, obviously, during the 25 years, and we had happy days as well. Sport normally brings that on, Ger. That's the nature of life as well. I was a happy man to be able to go down uh, to Westmead when they won the All-Ireland um well, the Leinster, I should say, mm. uh, with, with uh, the great Paddy O'Shea when he came on board. Uh, similarly, when Mick O'Dwyer brought Leash to glory, 
and uh, in, in having come up and won a Leinster at least. There were great nights, great occasions, great celebrations. But it was awfully probably who gave me the best days because they won the full business, the All Ireland, the All Ireland hurling championship, the famous one with Michael Bond, the, the, the 007 Bond as they called him, who came on board and led them to win, famously win that All Ireland final against Limerick. Extraordinary, extraordinary occasions, extraordinary days. And great celebrations. And I look back with nothing but happy memories, to be honest about it, about most of the stories I covered in those 25 years. You're on record as saying that it was COVID-19 working through the pandemic that made up your mind to say, that's it, I'm done here. Um, there's more to life. Off I go. Um, was it an easy decision? Well, I suppose, you know, to be honest about it, I was probably thinking of of, of leaving RTE for a while before before covid and that I start, I went back to education, oh, yeah. um, um, late, late adult education, as I say. I did a degree in a Bachelor of Arts degree in community development way back in 19, or sorry, in 20, 2015, 2016, I started it. Then I did an honours degree the following year uh, in, in my, my, my weekend work every Saturday for, for so many weeks um, with a group called Equal Ireland, who I'm very grateful to, by the way. Uh, and then at the start of COVID, I began a postgrad diploma in the area of tourism because I'm greatly involved in tourism myself at home in County mm. Longford, County Roscommon, where I live. I'm on the border of the two counties okay. today. I'm looking out in the Shannon here in Roscommon, but I could throw stone into Longford across the river from where I am. Um, and we have a great tourism industry building along here. We have a new thing called the Lockery Access for All Boat, which is which is historic, which is which is unique. It's the only. Uh, passenger vessel, licensed passenger vessel that can bring five, six wheelchairs out on a regular basis. I'm going to stop the you there and I'm going to say yeah. to you that you're being very modest because you were the founder of this, weren't you? Well, I was a joint founder. Myself and a, man, a man called Adam Broderick from Mullingar put it on the road. But what we're pleased about it is that your listeners will, will know about boats and obviously you see them every day in Spain. But what you don't see so normally is people in wheelchairs wheeling themselves onto the boat. Uh, lots of people get dropped in, into a boat by a hoist or have to get lifted in a ramp. People with disability do not like that. They want equality with the rest of us, and they're right. They want to be able to operate on their own. So we have a roll-on, roll-off boat. And what's that, people might say? Well, basically, think of a small car ferry. Think of a, of a small car ferry where the ramp comes down at the front, and the person in the wheelchair simply rolls on and rolls off. So we produced that a few years ago in this part of the world. It's extremely popular nationally. It brings people from all over Ireland to take part in it. But it got me hooked on the tourism thing. So I went back and did the postgrad diploma course to enhance my own skills and abilities. So I was thinking about moving away, maybe if the opportunity came up. But I can tell you, Jared, that the COVID was absolutely shocking. And I, I did not come out well out of COVID. Um, I was lucky, unlike a lot of other people, they've lost relatives and lost family members. I was lucky I wasn't affected to that level. And I saw too many funerals and too many deaths in that time. But I was emotionally... Uh, affected by the experience. It was traumatic. Uh, and I'll tell you why, because um, the, the the repeated nature of the deaths and the continuous reporting of deaths it got to me. I always said to myself in this job in RT, I never had a groundhog day. I always claimed that. I never had a groundhog day. I never got up in the morning and said, I'm going to do exactly what I did yesterday mm-hmm. in RT. But you know what? Groundhog day arrived with COVID because I get up in the morning, I get a call. There's a nursing home in Stradbally in County Leash there were four people dead there yesterday. We want you to go down and report on it again today. Guess what? There's another three people dead there today. Then I come back tomorrow for the nine o'clock news tomorrow night, another two people in the same nursing home dead. And by the end of the, the week or the 10 days, there were 11, 12, 13 people dead in that nursing home. And I found that reporting to be the biggest challenge of my life uh, because I just ran out of words to describe the grief of the families involved, the 
the, the anger in, as well, and this is going to come out in the next 12 months in, in Ireland here with the uh, the launch of the new inquiry on COVID, the anger of people about what went on during COVID. A lot, a lot of unhappy people, a lot of people still distressed and ca- caused by the trauma of that. I'll give you a very one quick example of a lady. She rang me on a daily basis in that time from, from County Leash. She was a solicitor. Her dad was in one of those nursing homes. And he went in with the early stages of Alzheimer's. He walked in, full health, full health, not a loss in the gentleman. He's like a lot of people, he lived alone and he was having the early stage Alzheimer's had come in. And as a result, she had to take measures and he lived there. But he never came out. He died uh, through COVID. And what annoyed her was that uh, despite his relatively good health otherwise, once he got he got COVID, he, they were unable to move him. They physically couldn't move him. They weren't allowed to move him to an acute hospital. And she will argue to this day that her, her father would still be alive mm-hmm. if he had the services of an acute hospital. Okay. Uh, who knows? Medically, I can't say if that's true or, true or false, the medical authorities. No one will say no because there never was an inquest into most of the, of the deaths in COVID. But I was hearing these stories, Ger, on a daily basis. I was meeting the relatives. I was coming back up to my home here in Bally League in Lanesboro on the Longford Roscommon border at night, usually usually up at midnight most nights when I got home after the nine o'clock news. And and I'd be telling my wife some of these stories of the people I met today. And you know what she said to me one of the days, she said, you know what, you really are a fun person to be living with at the moment. And she said to me, I really would be concerned about your own mental health if okay. this goes on. Okay. And, and that was a real eye-opener for me. I decided on one of those nights, you know what, you've done your time in television, in radio, You've got some new experience in tourism and you, you've built up some community and development experience over the years. The next job that appears in the paper, I'm going to apply for it. And that's what I did. Okay. Uh, I went to Riscama Leader Partnership who had a new post in community development, social enterprise. And I have spent three very happy years there up until the last couple of weeks when I've decided I'm moving on back to tourism brief now at Longford County Council in the coming year, starting very shortly. That's what we'll talk about. And that was actually one of the reasons that prompted me to to contact you. I'm going to stay with RTE for one more reason, and then we'll move on from that because there's a lot more to Kieran Maluli than RTE. The scandal last year, you have been asked, I know, um, a lot about it. Um, what are your thoughts on it now uh, that the dust has somewhat settled? Tubridy is a sideshow compared to what actually has been going on. Where does broadcasting in Ireland go from here, particularly public service broadcasting? Well, listen, Gerard, what happened last summer here in Ireland uh, and in RTE it remains a scandal. You know, RTE have a program called Sconall and uh, that they've run from time to time. They're going to be on it themselves in due course. That, 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 that whole episode was absolutely shocking. And I'll tell you why. Because uh, it's the timing of all this. You know, I mentioned COVID a few moments ago. When I was involved in COVID reporting, there was one day, and I checked the dates on this, there was one day when I was up in County Westmead, and two people from the same house had died through COVID, a par- partner, two par- partners' house. And I had to go to the funerals uh, that day for both of them. I went to, I went to the graveyard. I went to a graveyard when, when one person had been buried and the second person was coming along to be buried after. It was a shocking day for Ireland, a shocking day for a family. But on that day, we found out in July from RTE that uh, Ryan Tropperty's agent, Noah Kelly, had sent in another invoice to RTE for 150 grand for work they had not done. Uh, work uh, that they had not, uh, that had been promised that they'd be given, but they hadn't done. And they were invoicing for it and they were looking for the money. And what struck me about it was this was a time when half of Ireland wasn't working, a lot of people in in, in the uh, self-employed sector were out of work. And you might say they were getting dull and getting support and assistance, but their careers were gone. Their jobs were gone. Uh, they were out of business. A lot of people were sick. A lot of people were in very bad form. Schools were closed. 
a lot of industries were furloughed uh, and getting a, a fraction of their wages. And that it did that particular incident sickened me uh, because it, it said to me how wrong RTE was as management to have engaged in this process at all, how badly advised Noel Kelly was and Ryan Tuberty was uh, to engage in this process in the middle of COVID. And uh, I think the people of Ireland will not forgive RTE for what went on. The, the lies were told. Uh, the truth is the RTE disclosures about the salaries of Ryan Tuberty and others were wrong. Ryan Tuberty's was wrong, and, and to, to be accurate. Um, he was being paid a lot more money than we were told. And this is at a time while I was working with RTE colleagues who were told that we all would have to take the take a, take the, the cutbacks. The hit. We all would have to be prepared for this new life, Noel, where you know, the wages would be going down. We couldn't afford a, a new cameraman for the RTE Midlands region. We had to borrow one from around the country. Our studio in Dundalk was, was closed a lot. Our studios in the Midlands were closed. We hadn't got full-time staffing. But we had to do this because everybody was taking the same medicine. Well, you know what, Ger? They were not, it turned out. Mm. Ryan Tuberty and Noel Kelly were not taking the same medicine. And that angered me and angered me for one other reason I'll just mention briefly as well. And it, it, it's one of the personal reasons why I was so outspoken at the time about what happened. I was involved in a project here in the Midlands for four or five years um, uh, uh, surrounding a site called the Marconi Radio Transmitter. Yeah, You know your radio, you know Marconi, the king of radio transmitter design and the engineer who put it all on the road. But what a lot of people don't know is that the original RTE radio transmitter turned on by Dev, Dev Valera, in 1932 is still in situ in Atlone in County Westmead. It's, it's in a transmitter hall outside the town. In fact, people drive up and down the motorway from Dublin to Galway they, at night. They see a big mast and the red, right. the red light on the top of it. That's a telephone mast now. But that, that mast was the radio transmitter mast. For the now, the base wave. of it is the Marconi transmitter in a hall. It's about the size of a, a five-a-side football pitch. It's huge. Uh, an incredibly important part of our heritage in broadcasting. Incredibly important part. It's still intact. And I worked with a local committee in Atlone for four to five years to put together a plan to turn that site into a, the new National Science Museum for Ireland. We wanted to turn it into a site where people could come to learn about the old wireless and the new wireless. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea was that be the, what's there would be preserved and it, it could be working again, to be honest about it. The transmitter that's there could work again. Um, fantastic site. It would have seen the old equipment, the transmitter. And then to build on a wing next to it, which would have been a new airport style hangar, airplane hangar, which would all have the new wireless, all the new technology, everything to do with Marconi uh, up to now. And, and uh, we had great support from Falsh Ireland, who had committed €3 million Euro to the project. We had great support from uh, Ericsson in Athlone. Local Irish manager, a man called called Trilla Collins, had had had, uh, had offered a million euro to the project. We had four million in the bag, no, a jar for this project, and then we had to go to speak to RT about some of the additional land around the site that they owned to to put in the car parks for the development. And you know what RT said? We can't pay. Give we cannot give you the land. We're broke lads. We don't have any money. Okay, we're broke. We cannot give you the land to develop. The, the National Broadcasting Museum, the National Science Museum, because we don't have any money. And now, as you and I know, and the rest of the country knows now, they, were Gerard, flip-flops, yeah. they had the money. Yeah. They had the money. They were paying Ryan Tuberty €150,000, which, by the way, hasn't been returned, mm-hmm. for work that wasn't done at a time when that money would have bought the land at the car park. In the, in the end, they sold it over our head to a farmer in the area at a public auction, and he's using it for farming. Well, fair play to him. He, he's got his land. It's still cheap land. But they wouldn't give it to us because they said they were broke. And I took that issue personally because a, a voluntary committee had put an awful lot of work into that project. 
And I still think it's a scandal that RTE don't have not developed the site as a as a national uh, heritage site where people can go and learn about their own heritage. Go to the location where De Valera turned on the transmitter and, and the transmitter that put out all those Walton programs and all those great shows over the years. They should all be there to listen to. You should be able to go into that hall and go into a booth and listen to any radio program in RTE going back over 60 or 100 years. But you're not because RTE management at the time didn't have the foresight because they were too busy coming up with a deal to pay a broadcaster more money than he actually needed or required. And that's why I'm very annoyed about what happened. In terms of where we are now, the problem for RTE now is that I lost confidence in RTE management after that, but I was gone from the organization. Mm-hmm. The problem is now is that the people paying their license fee have lost confidence in RTE management. And the new man coming in is a good man, um, a man who's Kevin Backhurst, who's worked for the BBC. I know him personally. I think he's the right man in the right place. Okay. But he has a big job on his hand. Tough job to rebuild confidence. He's got to prove to people that he's going to control the organisation, manage it properly, unlike what happened in the past. If he does that, RT has a future. If he doesn't, they'll be continuously going back to the government to seeking handouts. And that can only go on for so long. That's all. Um, That's all. And, and they, they, but I, I must say, I'm sorry for people in RT who work with the organisation at the moment because there there are cutbacks on the way. There are job losses coming on the way as well. Um, and and I think you know we do need a strong RTE in we Ireland. Do. Yeah, uh, we have a program here called RTE Investigates. I don't know if there's an equivalent on Spanish television, but there should be. Yeah, uh, because it's it's an experienced group of reporters and broadcasters who go after stories investigatively. And they spend months chasing them. You will know, Ger, from, from your experience at home that they've investigated things like nursing homes where older people were abused. They've done, physically yeah, abused. They've done amazing I mean, what, things. What could be more important in terms of broadcasting, uh, to, in terms of investi- investigative reporting than that? That costs money, and RT must have the money to keep that service on the air. We must have Big Brother in this country looking after us still because we must have independent journalism. And uh, some of the finest journalists in Ireland still work for RT, and I hope for their good and for our own good, uh, that this will be resolved. All right. Listen, I know you're pushed for time, but I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your new role, which you take up at the end of the month, and that's working with Longford County Council. And it goes back to what you were talking about in terms of tourism. So tell me what the job is and what your hopes are for it. Yeah, well, I mentioned earlier in, in, our, in our, our interview today that uh, Bordemona is, is, was the centrepiece of, yeah. of industry in the Midlands. And, you know, I'm born here in the middle of the bog. I'm looking out at the lake, but the other side of me is the bog, right. on the other side of the, of the, of the town, of the house here in, in Longford, on the Roscommon border. And, you know, it's, it's such an intrinsic part of life in Ireland. Many of your listeners in Spain, I'm sure, will remember their day on the bog as well at home in Ireland uh, when, the, when they were, it might have been footing the turf, cutting the turf, bringing it home. Yeah. Um, spreading it. Uh, back ache stuff, Ger. We all hurt the back. We all, <laughs> right. we all try to milk in the sandwiches. It. Yeah, yeah. Well, making the sandwiches and put, <laughs> how about this one? Putting the boiled egg down the bog hole for later on in the day. How about that? Do you really? remember that? No. No. My dad, my dad brought me as a young man to the bog in, in, in Derry Geel up here in Longford. And my first job was to bring the boiled egg, bring the egg from the, from the car and put it into the, into the, the, the bean tin and put it down into the bog hole to keep it cold Put the milk with it, right. the milk in the little bottle of milk as well. So the the milk, the milk and the and the egg were kept cold until the middle of the day when I had to start a little fire. You wouldn't get away with it now, starting a fire in a bog. But start a little fire, get up the bean tin, fill the bean tin with water from the bog hole, boil and the take out the milk, put the egg into the bean tin. So we could boil the the, the, the eggs uh, and boil the water. Get the eggs ready for the lads who want want it after a while. Make the tea off the kettle as well nearby. 
and get them making and make the little bit of lunch in the middle of the day. That was part of our heritage. Wow. And it went on for so long, Jared. It went on for 60 years and still going on in some parts of the country. Uh, but what's happened, I suppose, uh, is, is climate change and all these, these other things have happened. And listen, there's a myth out there that, you know, people in the Midlands have always wanted to burn turf and didn't care about the environment. This is rubbish. Mm. The people of the Midlands have known for years that peat harvesting was coming to an end. You know, the turf came to an end. Peat, we knew this was coming for years. But what the problem is for us is that we were told we'd have this great phrase, a period of just transition okay. would arrive and everybody would get a chance to restart their life, look at something else. And over a specific period, uh, we were told this was going to be 10 to 20 years. Uh, the Germans have closed coal mines down all over their country. I'm sure in Spain, there's also been a transition moves in, in some sectors. Coal, the coal sector in Germany was huge. They got 28 years to move away from coal. So the communities were told, we're going to invest in other industries. We're going to give you grant aid to support you in different industries you may want to look at instead. In Poland, they created tax zones, and tax-free zones where you could, uh, around the coal mines, where you could go in for zero tax for a period of years. Okay. All of which to encourage people to turn to something else. Turn to tourism, turn to labor and industry, turn to IT, turn to something else. And in the Midlands, we thought we had 10 to 20 years to do that. But I'm afraid for a number of reasons, one of which were legal challenges against the ESB if running power stations are burning peat. And secondly was the change of power in Ireland when the Greens came okay. into power. Um, these were the two big issues uh, that changed 24 uh, months, uh, 24 years of a, of a transition down to less than 24 months. Wow. Uh, we were told we had, we had to close the power stations within two months. The, ter- the third and final one at Eden Derry in County Offaly stopped burning peat only recently. That's right. And now there's no peat burned in Ireland. And, you know, as a result of that, uh, we've had to look at uh, emergency measures now to try and rescue our economy here and try and give support people who live in Longford, Westmead, Leash, Offaly, Kildare, parts of Galway, uh, parts of uh, Mayo as well, for that matter. And one of the good things to emerge in this process has been a, a new uh, European Union Just Transition Tourism Fund. Okay. So it's up and running. It has It's offering about 70 million euro to the four four counties and those two two smaller parts as well. Okay. And uh, I suppose having having talked the talk, as I have done for a number of years, about the need for something like this, I decided now, Ger, that it's time to walk the walk. And so I applied for that job uh, before Christmas. And I said to myself, I'd love a challenge to take on because what people, a lot of people don't know is that the Lockery Access for All boat was actually part of the first Just Transition Fund in Ireland about okay. two years ago. All right. It was a state fund here announced around the time that the, the factory protests were closing. And that, that boat was supported to the tune of about half a million euro. Uh, there's a new access centre, a new state-of-the-art changing places suite for people with disability to change and use it down there. A fantastic project. It's creating 10 jobs. It was done at half a million. So I suppose Longford County Council are expecting me now to perhaps go around the county and help find another 5, 10, 15, 20 tourism projects like that mm-hmm. uh, who will avail of the funding, that 17 million euro, over the course of the next two, two to three years and create jobs in, in Bordemont areas. I relish the challenge, Ger, uh, because I know the potential of County Longford in terms of tourism. People say it's not the tourism area, you know, uh, it's not Galway, it's not the lakes of Killarney, but it has a few gems and I think most people don't know about them. Um I think it's changing already because of a, of a project called Centre Parks. Oh, yes. Um, the, Centre, the Centre Parks Holiday Village is now all up there in the top five tourism attractions in Ireland. Brings, it brings a, a turnaround of five, 6,000 people a week uh, now to County Longford. Wow. So you're talking about a quarter million people a year coming here now. 
Uh, they're enjoying uh, the Centre Park's Holiday Village at, at the Forestry in near Ballymahan in County Long. But you know what? They're seeing for themselves the beauty of County Longford, the beauty of the forestry, the terrain, and they're coming back now as well for other trips from time to time. So I'm looking forward to promoting County Longford. You're going to be hearing about St. Mel's Cathedral, I hope, yes, as well in the next couple of years. It, it was it was a, a beautiful architectural building built in Longford after the famine times. Um, of course, destroyed famously in a fire about ten years ago. Uh, I covered that on RT and did a documentary about it afterwards on on the rebuilding of it. Uh, today, it's it's absolutely splendid. It's up there with any building in the world in terms of, of in terms of cathedral, but it's missing its museum. It was due to have a museum open in, in the crypt of the cathedral. That project hasn't been developed yet. So I'm hoping in the coming weeks and months that we'll be able to work together with the authorities there to develop that as a visitor attraction. The museum in under the cathedral, okay, in the crypt, wow. which will tell the story. I hope of not just the building of the cathedral back in famine times but of the dramatic recovery after the, fa- after the fire. Sounds like you have um, a, a thought process going on, and I wish you the very best of luck with it. I know that you have to go. Um, Kieran Malouli, um, we might check in with you in um, a week, uh, a, bit, a bit of time, just to see how the plans are going and the progress that has been made, if that's okay with you. Yeah, I'd be delighted to do that, Jara. And can I take this opportunity to extend best wishes to all of your listeners uh, a few of whom I hope are listening today because I've tipped, I've tipped them off. My old friend Paddy McGovern over there in Majorca, Malaga, in Malaga, sorry, is, is I've told them to be on, on, online today. I've got so many more friends on the other side, on the east side of Alicante, down that part of Brilliant. the world. Uh, and they, they, they all, they all have great, great memories of holidays down there at Paddy's Point and, and the Zeni and all those co- coastal areas. Love going to Spain. We'll continue hopefully to get there. Hope to get back there again over the course of the next 12 months and great. enjoy it. And love meeting the the expats and the Irish and the people going across and forth. You're doing a great job on, on radio. That service is really badly needed there, keeping people up to speed of what's going on at home and what's they need to know about what's happening in, in, in Spain on the mainland. And, and I wish you very best to you and your listeners for the Thanks. coming year. And for your job, you listen, you're pushing an open door. If there's anything you need to promote for Longford, Roscommon, any of that area, do please let me know and I'm happy to do it. Yeah, well, and this is an opportunity for me to say it, that you know, the funding is 17 million euro. The, if you come back to County Longford to try and develop accommodation, for instance, at the moment, and we need that. Yes. We're lacking in accommodation. Say we decided you're going to open a new guest house, maybe 10 or 12 bedrooms. The funding is available up to about a quarter of a million euro for accommodation. Wow. So you've got to get in there, get back early, get the planning sorted, get the, the, the get your ducks in a row. And that's where I come in. I can help you to get the ducks in a row. I'll try and uh, dot the I's and cross the T's for you if I can in the application. Then we cross the fingers. And by the end of the year, we hope to have projects in place. So any of your listeners can contact me at, at Longford County Council um, or indeed on my email, kieramalulli at gmail.com. It's very simple to remember, kieramalulli at gmail.com. And I'll help in any, any way I can because it might be a nice uh, way to get back to Ireland and, and to get, a, get a feel, for, get a bit of... We have a lot of funding going on at the moment, Jaron, in helping people on derelict buildings as well. Yes. Huge amount of funding, up to €75,000 available to renovate an old cottage or an old home in Ireland that you may have access to. And I'd advise people to look at these. It's the best opportunity, I think, in probably um, uh, my lifetime for people to reinvest in property at home in Ireland. And I strongly encourage people to, to get in touch and maybe come back to the old soil uh, the old, the old, uh, and land. if if there was a Spaniard listening or somebody from Germany listening and wanted to maybe investigate setting up, is that process available to them? Absolutely, oh, great. absolutely. I mean, okay. the seventeen million euro fund is open to small and medium sized uh, enterprises. Okay, so anybody coming in, foreign investors, 
are very welcome, uh, no, no more than uh, the people of Europe. And we, we, we opened our gates to the people of Europe and refugees and asylum seekers. They, they are very welcome in Ireland. Mm. Let that message go out very clear to people. I live in a community here with, with over 70 Ukrainians. They're among my best neighbours, uh, Jarrah, and some of, the, some of the salt of the earth in this community. Brilliant. And they don't want to live in Ireland, but they're, they're here because of the conflict. They want to go home as soon as they can. But in the meantime, they're making a valuable contribution to the community here. And they're getting involved in tourism. They're getting involved in, in, in employment projects. So I say the message across the board to people of, of, of all, all class and religion and, and race. They're very welcome to come over here. Investment projects are open to, to international investors. Great. And it's a matter of setting up an operation here in Ireland. We, we've got the business team here to advise people on how to set up in Ireland and, and how they can operate tax-wise and everything else. And we'd be delighted to help them. So anybody interested, I'm, my door is open from from, uh, from now on. To, Great to stuff. Kiro Maluli, a pleasure to talk to you and hopefully not the last time we'll have a chat. Uh, best of luck in the new gig and um, thanks for talking to us today. It's been a pleasure, Ger. I look forward to talking to you again later in the year.
as to what the name of the song is it's called It's Later Than You Think it comes from Belfast duo Dark Tropics uh, the duo comprises uh, Rio McGuinness and Gerard Sands and a nice sound from them It's Later Than You Think thanks to Kieran Maluli for joining me on the programme this evening really enjoyed that chat um, great man full of energy isn't he it's fabulous yeah it's great to um, chat to somebody like that where you just throw something out and sure they run with it then <laughs> that's great um, and fascinating to listen to his um, insights into various things anyway thanks Kira. Wind Farms supplied a record 35% of all electricity used on the island of Ireland last year that's according to the annual report of Wind Energy Ireland this saved 1.6 billion euro north and south wow from having to be spent on imported gas and carbon credits that would not be required to burn it, that would have been required to burn it. As a result, over 5 million tonnes of carbon dioxide emissions was prevented, equivalent to taking 1.9 million cars off the Irish roads. That's fabulous. On average, every day last year, wind turbines saved 4.2 million euro. That's every day, every day right? 4.2 million euro having to be spent importing gas to generate electricity and the associated carbon credits. On the best day, which was the 12th of January last year, when wind was strong and gas prices uh, were very high and daily saving was 14 million euro. The savings were or are paid out to the owners and operators of the wind farms and is reinvested in Irish energy infrastructure, helping to continue the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. The report, which was released on Tuesday by management consultants Beringa for Wind Energy Ireland, said that Ireland wind, Irish wind farms supplied enough electricity last year to power 3 million households and prevented over 5 million tonnes of carbon dioxide emissions. It said that this is the equivalent to a person flying around the world 8,000 times. The report shows that last year was the best year yet for wind energy generation, with wind farms supplying just over 50% of electricity consumed in December and 35% of electricity demand for the entire year. Chief Executive of Wind Energy Ireland, Noel Caniff, described this as a true success story and said that we are on the way to an energy independent future for Ireland. He warned, however, that wind farms cannot be built and power cannot be delivered to where it is needed without a planning system that is fit for purpose and without support from AirGrid and ESB networks to develop a much stronger electricity grid. 
He said progress to date on the planning and development bill has been welcomed by industry and the government's plan to put in place mandatory timelines for planning decisions as part of the new legislation needs to be fully supported. Both planning reform and grid reinforcement must remain top priorities right across the political system in 2024. The average wholesale price of electricity in December last was 88.97 euro, that's 88 euro 97 cent per megawatt hour, down 68% in December 2022, raising the possibility of these savings being passed on to consumers in the coming months. And that's already started, as we know. Um, even today, there was an announcement from Board Gosh um, uh, that. Uh, gas prices were coming down as uh, were electricity prices, which is great. Have I time for this? I have more than a quarter of a million calls for help were received last year by the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, a 10% increase on the number of calls the previous year. The charity says that just over 90,000 or over a third of the callers were requesting help with food. Close to 30,000 people who sought help from the St. Vincent de Paul last year were doing so for the first time. 20,000 calls related to those seeking help with energy and utility bills, while another 33,000 calls were from people struggling with both food and energy costs. The number of calls peaked in the run-up to Christmas, um, something I suppose that didn't surprise anybody. The majority of the remaining 77,000 calls related to costs around back-to-school, third-level education, household goods, Furniture, clothing, support with health-related expenses, issues with mortgages and rent or funeral expenses. However, the charity noted that last September calls for help with back-to-school costs fell due to the free school book scheme and an increase in the back-to-school allowance. It hopes to see a similar impact uh, where free, uh, free books and junior cycle are rolled out. A central statistics office survey of income and living conditions shows that there were just over 875,000 people experiencing basic deprivation, deprivation, um, which means going without essentials such as adequate nutrition, warm clothing and heating. The St. Vincent de Paul says the shows, this shows that uh, just a small proportion of those in need of help are reaching out for it. St. Vincent de Paul National President Rose McGowan says that behind each of the statistics is a person or family trying to tread water in a sea of rising living costs. The the SVP is now calling on the government to commit to reduce consistent poverty to 2% or less by 2025. The rate stood at 5.3% in 2022. The charity is calling for benchmarking for the social protection system um, to what people need to live, increased investment in education across life cycle, better pay, training and employment supports to address in-work poverty as well. The charity says significant studies are needed by the Child Poverty Unit in the Department of Antishok to help end child poverty as well. Sorry about rushing that at the end, but I wanted to be sure that I had time to thank my guests and do other bits and pieces. And I want to say thank you to Patricia for her story. Patricia, as you know, joins us on a regular basis. She was telling us tonight about the River Avoca. Thanks a million, Patricia. Dr. Audrey Whitty, Director of the National Library of Ireland. Thank you again. And don't forget their website is nli.ie. She was telling us tonight about the Andrew Bonner Law Connection Collection, which is absolutely fabulous. Can't wait for that to be released. And Kieran Maluli, broadcaster, author, community activist, and now tourism provider very shortly, or tourism promoter 
promoter, I suppose you could say. As always, I want to say thank you to Antonio Sierra, our Spanish-Irish cultural advisor on the programme, for the work that he does on a daily basis for Live On Era. But most especially, thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again next Wednesday for another edition of Live On Era. Until then, from me, Jer Sweeney, bye-bye, and thank you very much indeed. Jer Sweeney presents Live On Era in association with EmeraldConnection.net. You've been listening to a TRE production. If you've enjoyed this program, there'll be another episode waiting for you next week, right here on this platform, where you can also access our extensive back catalogue of shows and interviews. For more information on our live programming, social media channels and apps, and how to contact Talk Radio Europe, please visit tre.radio.